spider And the kings plot in vain The kings of the earth rise up And the rulers band together Against the Lord and against his anointed One in heaven, he laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them, rebukes them in his anger, and terrifies them in his wrath. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Break them with a rod of fire Dash them to pieces like pottery Therefore, kings, be wise Be warned, you rulers of the earth Serve the Lord with fear Celebrate his The one in heaven, he laughs at them The Lord scoffs at them Rebukes them in his anger And terrifies them in his wrath His wrath can flare up in a moment Blessed are all who take refuge in him Why do the nations conspire And the kings plot in vain The kings of the earth rise up And the rulers band together Against the Lord And against His anointed The one in heaven He laughs at them The Lord Scoffs at them Rebukes them in His anger And terrifies them This is Georgianne Hughes, and this is The Bite Show. And we're very blessed to have Joseph P. Farrell with us. And Dr. Farrell has a website, Giza 
deathstar.com. And there is a PayPal button on that website. And we must keep Dr. Farrell in research material. And it is expensive. So please exercise that PayPal button. Joseph, Uh I think today we should do Dirty Secrets, the Valkyrie. Ah, (laughs) okay. Before we get started, can I make a little announcement? Um, Yes. I I thank you for for that. It's... uh, and I want to thank everybody that has been making donations and visiting the website. I'm, what uh, what my announcement is, is my web developer and I are planning to do a, a video conference, if we can get the technology working on it, um, a video conference on the website. We'll have a couple guests and kind of a panel discussion, and uh, hopefully within the next two to three months, um, We'll be making some announcements to that effect. Uh, who the guests will be, if if we can get the software to work, <laughs> which, well, as you know, great. as you know, is <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, my goal, my goal is again, you know, to get rid of that donation button altogether eventually when when the site becomes self-sustaining. But it's a lot of work, and uh, yeah. And as you say, the materials for research that on the books I'm doing is very expensive. So I, I want to thank everybody once again. Um, a couple of dear individuals, you know who you are, uh, that have helped so much. Um, uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have made it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry, but thank you. Oh, well, that that's good of you, Joseph. The Valkyrie. Uh-huh comes from the Norse uh, myth, does right. it not? Well, the, I'm assuming that, that you're discussing the Valkyrie in, in connection with, with the uh, July 20th, 1944 assassination attempt yes. by, against Adolf Hitler. Yes. Uh, in Norse mythology, yes, the Valkyrie, you know, if, if you're familiar with the Wagner opera at all, uh, the Valkyrie, which is from the, the Ring of the Nibelungen series. Uh, if you're familiar with that at all, it, it follows fairly closely the, the Norse mythology that the Valkyrie are basically handmaidens of the gods that, that go around determining life and death over, <laughs> over yes. people. And, and in cases of fallen heroes and so on, they, they haul them off to Valhalla. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's what the Valkyrie are, at least in terms of Norse mythology. But in terms of, of the July 1944 bomb plot against Adolf Hitler, the the operation itself was codenamed Valkyrie. And you know, the, there there is a movie out by that name, starring Tom Cruise and, yes. and uh, Kenneth Branagh and. and uh, a bunch of other actors, European actors mostly, that pretty closely, um, as far as movies go, you know, movies tend to take liberties with things, but as far as, as the actual history of what's known about that bomb plot against Hitler, it's it's fairly accurate. Um, the people that they're portraying involved, uh, Dr. Carl Dr. Gerdler and, and uh, General Ludwig Beck and, uh, of course, Colonel Count von Stauffenberg, 
who who's the character that's played by Cruz. And actually, you can go online and, and look Google for uh, pictures of Colonel Stauffenberg, and you'll discover that there is a vague resemblance between Tom Cruise and, and uh, Colonel Stauffenberg. But uh, these people had been trying. There was a circle in Germany comprised of, of officers of, of the German general staff, many of them generals, in fact, uh, and uh, intellectuals and so on and so forth, and members of, of the German uh, elite, if you want to call it that, that were attempting throughout the Nazi regime to get rid of Hitler. And, and, and I think that's probably what your, your interest yes. <laughs> is. Okay. Yeah. Joseph? Yes, I'm here. Oh. You, in a conversation that we had, uh-huh. you said there had been 15 attempts yes. on uh, Hitler's life. On Hitler's life? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, this is true. Um, you, have to, you have to go back to the, the circumstances beginning with uh, the run-up after the Anschluss with Austria, which occurred in March of 1938. At that juncture, if you look at the old map of Europe, the pre-war map of Europe, at that juncture, Hitler had basically put Czechoslovakia into a vice. Yes. And Czechoslovakia had been intended by the, the post-World War I victorious Allied powers to be a kind of buffer state in the center of Europe, uh, with with a dagger, quite literally, a dagger pointed right at the heart of the Reich, and that's exactly the way the Nazis viewed it. Uh, it had it had uh, retained most of the industry of of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Most of that industry, particularly the armaments industry, was concentrated in Czechoslovakia. And at the juncture that that Hitler had successfully pulled off the Anschluss, the annexation of, of Austria to the Reich. The Nazis began immediately, almost immediately, push, putting pressure on Czechoslovakia up to the point, of course, that, that Hitler was making noises like he was prepared to go to war and crush Czechoslovakia by military force if necessary. Yeah. And that would have been, you know, the start of World War II, in other words, would have been in 1938. And it was at this juncture, George Ann, that many generals within the German general staff began to realize that that Hitler was was carrying Germany onto a path of a general war that they did not want uh, for a variety of reasons. Some generals thought that Germany wasn't prepared for war. Um, other generals recognized the nature of, of the Nazi regime and just wanted to be rid of it. Yeah. Uh, so there was actually beginning plans for the coup, serious plans, began really in 1938, at least among this circle of, of people that eventually would be the same people involved in, in the 1944 bomb plot. Now, as we know, the history at that point becomes rather convoluted because France and Britain stepped in to appease Hitler and grant him his demands, which of course took place in September of 1938 at, at the infamous Munich conference. You know, you had uh, France... Britain and Italy, Mussolini and, and uh, Deladier of France and, and Chamberlain of, of Great Britain, going to Munich for a high-level summit meeting with Hitler 
you'll note that Czechoslovakia wasn't even divided to its <laughs> to, no. its, to its own dismemberment. <laughs> so um, that was the conference that that handed the Sudetenland of, of Czechoslovakia over to Hitler. And of course, he pulled off this coup without firing a shot, and his popularity within Germany shot up immensely. And the generals that were thinking about overthrowing the regime at that point backed off. All right. Then, in uh, I think it was March of, of 1939, there was another bomb plot against Hitler. I think it was in the city of Danzig. No, pardon me. This this wasn't March. It was was uh, September of, of 1939 after the Germans had had. Uh, invaded Poland and, and captured the free city-state of Danzig, which, if you're wondering what that city is now, it would be the Polish city of Gdansk, but it used to be a German city by the name of Danzig. And Hitler gave an address there. There, had, there was a bomb placed into the pillar immediately behind his podium where he was speaking, and I think it was uh, Danzig. And all of a sudden, Hitler ended his speech. No one really knows to this day why he did this, but you know he had this uncanny sense, uh, sixth sense, intuition. He ended his speech very abruptly and just left the place. And then a few minutes later, the bomb went off. You know, where if he had been standing there giving his speech when that happened, you know, most likely he would have been killed. Yes. Or at least severely incapacitated and, and would have had to have been removed from office. So these, these, these are the indicators that there was always this movement within Germany to, to get rid of him. Now, one of the most interesting, George Ann, is if you, if you look at the Cruise movie, mm-hmm. the Tom Cruise movie, Valkyrie. Yes. At the beginning of that movie, there is a scene where it shows two German transport planes flying into Smolensk in Russia, all right, landing at an airfield in, inside of Russia behind German lines. And Hitler gets out. He has a conference with a bunch of his officers there in, in Smolensk. And at the end of the conference, a general that's played by um, Kenneth Branagh, the general's name is Henning von Treschko, Okay. He places, he gives a box of wine bottles to a German colonel flying, flying back to Germany with Hitler. Yes. And these two wine bottles are, in fact, bombs that have an altimeter so that they're set to go off when the plane passes a certain altitude and then descends below that altitude. In other words, ascending beyond the altitude arms the bomb, and then when you descend... From that altitude, the bombs go off. All right, mm-hmm. General Treshko. This is this is a true incident, George Ann. This is a very true incident. Okay. General Treshko placed this package as a gift, you know, faked it as a gift, and then was waiting to hear that the plane had been blown up with Hitler and his staff as it landed in East Prussia. And of course, the official version of the story is is that the plane, the bomb malfunctioned. And the plane landed anyway, and Hitler survived yet another attempt. 
Now, this is a very interesting case, Georgianne, because in the, I think it was the 1980s, there was a very interesting novel that was published by the British thriller novelist Colin Forbes. And the title of the novel, I I used to have this novel. In fact, I think I still do somewhere in this vast collection of books. The, the, The novel was entitled The Leader and the Damned. And it was all about that assassination attempt that was made on Hitler. And the thesis of the novel, this is one of those novels that gives you the creeps because you're reading it and all the details fit. And at the very end of the novel, there's an afterword by the author saying that he heard this story from an intelligence source within British intelligence and that he decided to fictionalize the story rather than to research it. All right? Okay. Now, here's the thesis of, of the book, of the novel. The thesis is is that Hitler, first of all, went to that conference on the Eastern Front because he was preparing to take a huge military gamble and transfer about 60 divisions from the West Wall in France secretly to the Eastern Front and just end the war with Russia in a gigantic offensive. Uh Okay, Which would have, of course, exposed Western Europe to invasion from the Allies. But Hitler apparently according to the novel, was prepared to take the gamble. All right. Had he done so, the the outcome of the war in the East may have been decided. All right. He was he was in fact in March of nineteen forty three preparing to launch a major offensive that summer. All right. Yes. Now the other thesis of the novel is that on the way back to Germany, to East Prussia, as the aircraft was landing at Hitler's headquarters, the bomb, in fact, did go off and, in fact, did kill Hitler and his staff. And the thesis of the book is that at that point, Martin Bormann, who, who, along with his friend Gestapo Miller, and I've written about this in, in my book, The Nazi International, the thesis of Forbes' book is that Martin Bormann stepped in and placed Hitler's double, substituted Hitler's double for Hitler for the entire rest of the war. In what year was this? This was was March of 1943. Okay. And basically ran the war himself using Hitler's double. All right? Wow. Now, the interesting thing, George Ann, that, that Forbes points out, and this is quite true, is that Hitler himself after that bomb attempt, made very, very few public uh, public appearances where he was seen in the newsreels. And after that point, made so few public appearances that he never spoke where you actually saw him speaking again yeah. in public after that assassination attempt. There were radio broadcasts of Hitler, to be sure, but there was never any more of this... Uh, you know, the the presence of Hitler in the newsreels, uh, giving a speech here or there or what have you. So he points out these little oddities. Um, You know, I I sit on the fence on that one because, you know, if if that is true, then it throws the entire history of the last two and a half years of the war into 
a kind of a cocked hat. Uh, there's a lot of explaining of, of a lot of things to do. But that's the other famous attempt uh, attempt to get rid of Hitler, uh, to, to decapitate the Nazi regime and, and uh, substitute a, a regime that, that's... <laughs> Not Nazi, <laughs> let's put it that way. But anyway, there we go. Well, if if that were true, mm-hmm. I would think that they would have closed the camps. Well, this, George Ann, the, the, the bomb plot, what, what really gets me is that the, the 1944 bomb plot was, in my opinion, and has never been really well explained. Because, of course, the the group of people carrying out this conspiracy were intent on decapitating the Nazi government. In other words, get, getting rid of it completely and then suing for peace to the Western Allies. All right? Yes. Now, there are two hidden things going on, taking place in the bomb plot behind the scenes that are seldom, if ever, really talked about. The first of them is, is that you'll recall in my my book, Reich of the Black Sun, which was my first Nazi book, Mm -hmm. I make the case that the Germans actually were successful in developing an atomic bomb, and that the first test of their bomb occurred in October of 1944, all right? In other words, uh, within two months after the bomb plot assassination attempt on Hitler. Now, it's my belief that this was part of the motivation for these generals to attempt to overthrow Hitler because they probably had wind or news that they were working on an on an A-bomb and they probably had some understanding of how close the the Nazis really were to getting it. Yes. And I think their fear was, at least as military men, that if Hitler got the bomb and if he had a safe and secure means of delivering one to a strategic target like London or New York or Paris or what have you, that he would actually use it. Oh, boy. And, of course, had he done so, it would have brought such overwhelming response from the Western Allies that it may have just literally devastated all of Germany. I think this was their fear. In other words, they realized that the bomb wasn't anything that was going to end the war other than with just the absolute destruction of Germany. Mm-hmm. So I think this was their first fear, and I think this was one of the prime motivations that, that led them to to attempt the the assassination attempt on Hitler. But there's a second one, George Ann, and this is very important. Okay. This this is what you do not find in the history books, and it's again, it's one of those dirty little secrets that you you have to read a lot of books and then connect the dots. Okay. The the other dirty secret is that President Roosevelt in this country, of course, had with Winston Churchill called for the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany. So we have to ask the question, you know. What were these conspirators thinking? Why did they think that they could sue for a separate peace with the Allies when the two Western Allied leaders had made it clear that they weren't going to accept anything uh, 
less from Germany than total capitulation. All right? Yeah. The reason why is that within this country, Roosevelt, ever since taking power, had faced a segment of, a, a very wide segment of, of American business leaders, uh, kind of revolving around the DuPont family, yeah. all right, and, and their corporate interests, yeah. that were adamantly opposed to Roosevelt. In fact, if, if your listeners are out there that are familiar with the coup d'etat attempt, this circle actually plotted a coup d'etat against Roosevelt for the purpose of trying to install a kind of a fascist dictatorship in this country. And they selected a Marine general by the name of Smedley Butler to lead the coup. Fortunately for Roosevelt, what Butler did is he learned, he, he pretended to go along with his plot long enough to learn the details of the plan. Then he informed Roosevelt of it. And the coup, of course, never happened. But the circle that was behind it was always opposed to Roosevelt. You had the firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, of course, the famous legal firm in New York City. Uh, the Dulles brothers, Allen and John Foster Dulles, were connected with this, as was uh, the later Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal. Uh, you know, all of these characters were pressing for and trying to arrange a negotiated peace with Germany. And you had a similar circle in England as well. And the reason why they wanted a negotiated peace with Germany is, quite literally, they wanted Germany to take all those troops on the Western Front and, and go after the Soviets. They, they were more afraid of the Soviets than they were of the Nazis. So they were trying to, to figure out a way to bring about a negotiated peace. Now, this is where Alan Dulles comes in. And let's refresh our memory here, folks. Alan Dulles, at the time, was the OSS station chief in Zurich, Switzerland. He was already involved in secret negotiations with the leader of German military intelligence on the Eastern Front by the name of Reinhard Galen, all right? And we know the results of that negotiation. Galen later agreed to a deal to turn over his entire military intelligence espionage network to the Americans after the war if he could remain in day-to-day control of it. That group, of course, later becomes more or less the on-the-ground Soviet desk for the CIA. All right? Now, let's remember who Alan Dulles is in turn. Alan Dulles, of course, later became director of the CIA, the very CIA that he had had, uh, negotiated this deal with a bunch of Nazi spies. And he's fired by President Kennedy for his role in the Bay of Pigs operation, and then later becomes a member of the Warren Commission, all right? This is out. Oh, yeah. So, in other words, we're looking at something huge once again here, folks. Maybe we should have filed this under LBJ and the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. (laughs) Because, again, the, the dots connect in so many weird ways. Well, Alan Dulles represented, during the war in Zurich, Switzerland, he represented the interests of this group in the United States of businessmen, military men, bankers, and so on, that were trying to get a sec- separate peace with Germany, a negotiated peace. And Dulles actually communicated to these leaders in Germany of, of, of the conspiracy against Hitler that no negotiation for a negotiated peace with Germany could occur 
so long as Hitler and other top Nazis remained in power. Yes. So in other words, the Americans were telegraphing the German resistance that if you can get rid of Hitler and a couple of other of his henchmen, take out and decapitate the Nazi regime, then yes, the possibility exists for a negotiated peace. So this is the second motivation, I think, that's behind this desperate attempt to to uh, stage a coup d'etat and, and decapitate Hitler's regime. I think when you add all the dots together, there are, you know, massive hidden forces at work. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a huge, huge story, George. Oh yes, and I had I had not been aware of the uh, Dallas. Uh, Most people aren't. You see, this is what they what they want to do is present the German bomb plot and and the German resistance as this sort of homegrown hodgepodge thing yeah. without connections. But but you have to understand that the connections between Germany and the United States and between its corporate elite and our corporate elite prior to the war were vast and deep and extensive. Yes. And unless you understand that, then you really don't have a real understanding of why these conspirators thought that they could succeed in this, what otherwise sounds as, as a crazy goal in, in decapitating the Nazi regime and, and negotiating a peace with the Western allies. Um, you just you just don't uh, you just don't understand without bringing these other connections into the picture. And that's the problem, you see, George Ann, with yeah. these official histories and movie versions, is they don't tell you any of this story. Yeah. <laughs> because that exposes those connections and those connections are what they don't want exposed. Because if you learn of those connections, then you learn of how pervasive the collusion was all during the war yeah. between these German and American corporations and their elites. And you also, once you once you make those connections, then you see the same dark, shadowy organization emerge after the war. And that that's where you get the beginning of, of what I'm calling the Nazi International. Yeah. Oh my goodness! George. Yeah, it's it's a huge, huge, uh, huge thing, Georgian. Yeah, it certainly is. Oh my goodness! Well, <clears throat> the bankers uh -huh. um, were very involved in all of this. Yes, and they stood to make tons and tons of money. Yes. from this war. Oh yes, absolutely they did. You know, we need to remember that the the Morgan Rockefeller interests were able to to not only keep branches of Chase Manhattan open inside of Europe during the war. Yeah. But they were also using a variety of of uh shady means to ship oil to the Nazis. Oh. You know, oh, yeah. You know, this is oh. going on during the war. Oh, my. Um, you know, so it's, it's Georgianne, it's such a murky, murky thing. And the other thing we need to realize is that these conspirators in Germany also had their business reasons for wanting to get rid of Hitler and end the war 
at least with the Western allies. And the other, the other thing that we need to remember is that these conspirators were not really attempting to end the war against Russia. What they were wanting to do was free all those troops that the, the Western Front tied down and ship them to the Eastern Front and at least stalemate the Russians and, and keep them out of Eastern Europe. So in other words, they had certain long-term geopolitical objectives at work as well. And they realized that if Hitler were left in power, Germany would still be facing a two-front war and therefore be unable to, to stop the advance of, of the Red Army into Eastern Europe and, and possibly even into Germany. That was their big fear. Yeah. Well, today, uh-huh. um, how does Germany sit? Today? Mm-hmm. Well, Germany, oddly enough, you know, I, I, in this series I've mentioned many times that one of Martin Bormann's post-war goals for the Nazi International was to establish a European Federation that Germany would be able to dominate by elastic political and economic means. Well, lo and behold, Germany right now has one of the world's largest export economies. The German economy is the locomotive for the rest of Europe. And with the euro situation, with the creation of a common currency, what what has happened is, is it has put Germany into the position if they're going to hold the European Union together, that Germany has to basically bail all those other countries out. Oh, dear. Now, that means it's going to be a huge burden on the German economy, on the German taxpayer. Yes. But the flip side of that, George Ann, is it means that Germany is going to be rather in the same position vis-a-vis Europe as China is vis-a-vis the United States. They'll be holding a lot of debt. Yeah. And therefore, they're going to be able to exercise a lot of hidden influence in those governments. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So it's, you know, it looks to a certain extent (laughs) that Martin Bormann's dream is coming true as we speak. Oh, my God. You know, and I, I can't imagine being Italian or Spanish or Greek and looking at that possibility with, with uh, you know, given the historical background. I, I can't imagine being a citizen of those countries and looking at those possibilities with anything less than trepidation. Yeah, no happiness. <laughs> no happiness, right. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see the route that Germany takes. Quite honestly, I do not see Germany breaking out of the euro and... Uh, leaving the European Economic Union. I I just don't see that happening. So I think they're going to stay the course. Uh, Merkel has to sell this idea to the German people. Uh, And it's, you know, it's debatable whether or not they will will go along with it or not. But I I think ultimately it's going to fall out that way. The other big push going on in Europe right now is under the Euro arrangement, the the individual countries retained national control over their budgets, all right? Yes. Now, what has happened since that meeting of of, uh, President Sarkozy and and Chancellor Merkel in Paris 
was they are calling for a centralized budgetary European-wide planning for budgets. In other words, the nations would lose their national sovereignty for their budgets. Uh-huh. And what that really means, what that really means, and this, this I think is why so many Europeans in those other nations are so upset, what it really means is that most of the shots are going to be called in Paris and Berlin. Yes. Yeah. And, and given the size of the German economy, of course, Berlin is going to have the most influence of the two. So... Um, you're looking at the possibility of, uh, yet again, of, of a German-dominated Europe. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, how the worm has turned. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's, you know, every day, Joseph, stuff comes out about the Bank of America, mm-hmm. Um <laughs> fraud, more fraud, more fraud, and more fraud. Mm-hmm. It, it is, and nobody goes to jail. <laughs> you know. I know. I know. It, it, it it's it's just mind-boggling how people can break the law. And well, we have to understand. We have to understand what fascism. Is yeah. be it be it Mussolini's fascism in Italy or Franco's phalangism in Spain or Hitler's Nazism uh, in Germany, we have to understand what fascism is. Fascism is a global, or pardon me, a, a national corporate socialism. In other words, there is a tight working relationship between governments and corporations. Yeah. So in other words, once you establish the fact that the government is there to look out for for large corporate interests rather than for the public good. Yeah. Then there's a revolving door between corporations and government. Huh. It was true in Nazi Germany, it was true in in Mussolini's Italy, it was true in Franco's Spain. Uh you you see this corporate state emerge that's totally unresponsive to the public good and is therefore corrupt. In other words, the laws are made for the average person but not for the people running the country. That's you know, that's the problem. Yes. It's 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 the institutionalization of complete corruption. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we see going on in this country. You have a very docile mild form of fascism. It doesn't openly parade itself in goose-stepping army parades and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, you have that tight relationship between major corporations, financial houses, foundations, think tanks, and and the government that's incestuous, and they end up protecting their own. Well, when somebody is brought to court... Are the judges, I mean, some of the decisions that are handed down are crazy. Of course. Are the judges all corrupt? Either corrupt or blackmailed. I mean, it's a simple matter, you know, to get a phone call at home in the middle of the night saying, you better decide such and such case this way or, you know, your family's in danger. Hmm. You know, it's it's a very simple matter. Um, that's, that's the problem. My goodness. 
Yeah, it's 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 a system that is uh, it's a system that if you study Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and and see the the miserable state of corruption that existed in that country beginning around 1944, <clears throat> with the corruption being so endemic at that point that there is no rule of law at all. You just have competing factional interests all held together by one man, namely Hitler, who uses these factions, plays them off against each other to maintain his power. Eventually, it implodes. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it always implodes. Well, Hitler... Maybe it's just my bias, but I don't see him as being brilliant. Well, Hitler, he, the problem with Hitler is he was, I think, no political poltroon. In other words, I do think he was a brilliant politician. He, he also was, at least at the beginning of the war, was astute enough strategically to realize that Germany could not fight and win the war without some really bold strategic decisions. Um, in fact, the boldest strategic decision he made was was to approve the unorthodox invasion plan for invading France in 1940, which of course led to the collapse of France within less than two months. Yeah. Um, but you begin to see Hitler making the wrong decisions after the collapse of France and, and doing so not for military reasons, but for political ones. Um, you know, leaving the English to escape at Dunkirk was one of them, not listening to uh, Reichsmarschall Goering and, and uh, Grand Admiral Raider at the end of the French campaign in, in their plan to, to end the war against Britain quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, he made a crucial, huge strategic error in August of 1941 in the invasion of Russia, uh, which was made over the, the council and opposition of his generals. All sorts of strange things. And then the strangest of them all is we go back to that March 1943 bomb plot attempt against him uh, with the wine bottles on the airplane that at that point Hitler <coughs> Hitler's military actions and, and decisions and, and behavior become increasingly erratic. I mean this is something that you can trace to that time period. Um, so who knows George Ann? I, I, I think that you're dealing there with evil brilliance. Let, let's be very Blunt and honest. I think that's what he was. Oh, well, he certainly was evil. Yes. And the men that uh, obeyed him yes. were given to evil also. I think some of them started out that way. Others, I think, became that as as their moral moral compass was corrupted by being around him and in his inner circle. Mm-hmm. Um. I think if you read the works of Albert Speer, his his armaments minister, you you find the um, 
you find the clear case of a man after the war who's trying to figure out why and how he lost his moral compass. Um, I think that's probably true for a lot of Germans. Wow. There was, you know, fortunately there was that circle in Germany that didn't and that attempted somehow to, to remove the man unsuccessfully. You know, it would have been a very, very different ending of the war had they been successful at any of those points. It It's almost like <laughs> he was protected by some kind of uh, spiritual force. Yes. Um, Possibly so. Um, you know, we've commented many times that what midwife's Nazism into existence is precisely a bunch of uh, occult-based secret societies in, in, in the Weimar Republic. Yes. Um, and we really don't know the full extent of their practice, what they actually did in their meetings, uh, how exposed Hitler was to it. There has always been a strong body of evidence that suggests that even in his years as a teenager, Hitler was exposed to some very, very heavy-duty uh, occult doctrine and teachings, but there's never been very much evidence that he himself became involved in any of it, except at the end of the war, when American soldiers found his library from, from Berchtesgaden, he did have a number of, of very heavy-duty occult books, which some of them had underlinings and little annotations in his own writing uh -huh. in these books. So, yeah, um, that that's always been a possibility that I, that I personally hold open, that, that there was something spiritual going on of some nature yes. with with the upper tiers of, of the Nazi regime. Um, there's there's no other way to explain how a chicken farmer like Heinrich Himmler becomes one of the greatest mass murders in history. Yes. And you do have a clear clear case there of a man who loses his moral compass and becomes heavily involved in all manner of, of occult belief and practice. Wow. Oh. And Borman uh, escaping to Argentina. Yes. <laughs> it, it just, I mean, it's like the the guts of the regime yes. uh, just ferried off into uh, another country. <laughs> yes, yes. This, this has always been my supposition. Borman... Beginning in 1942, when Hitler makes Bormann basically his Amanos Gris, uh, his gatekeeper. In other words, you did not get to see Hitler without passing through Bormann from that point on. So Bormann became the de facto ruler of Nazi Germany. Hitler's run, <clears throat> running his war, but basically Nazi Germany is left in the hands of Martin Bormann on a day-to-day -day basis. And Bormann, you know, I'm one of those who, who just has too many difficulties with the various official stories that, that you know, he, he died in Berlin in 1945. I just don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. uh, but even if it is, George Ann, the fact remains that after the war, we have a large 
extraterritorial Nazi state conducting business as usual and conducting it in collusion with the very large corporate interests in New York and London that it did before the war. Yes. That's the story. That is so amazing. Yeah. I mean, how wicked, how (laughs) devilish. Um, Great Britain and New York (laughs) is. It's just, my God. Yeah. And and they're doing the same thing now with the Middle East. Yeah, it, it would appear that way. And, you know, we need to remember, since you mentioned the Middle East, we need to remember one very important fact that I've mentioned earlier in this series. The radical Islam mm-hmm. was deeply connected with and penetrated by the Nazis both prior to and during World War II. Yes. If that movement looks like and feels like Nazism, that's because it is. It's kind of uh, it's kind of an Arabized or Islamicized Nazism, but that's what it is. Oh. Yeah. And you you cannot, you know, going going to statements that many people have observed about 9-11. You cannot pull off an operation like that without deep organization, without deep financial pockets, and without the support of a power that has deep intelligence assets and organization. Yes. And, you know, there are only certain countries in the world with that kind of uh, ability, and there's Again, there are various groups, international groups, that also would have that capability. So we have to look very deeply at events going on today because, in my opinion, Georgian, we're seeing a few clues that that post-war Nazi international is alive and well. Very alive and well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, Joseph, my goodness. Well... How is your new book coming along? Well, I'm I'm writing two books, as you know. Um, Mm -hmm. The one I'm writing by myself is a a continuation of this Nazi story. Um, It's about two-thirds done. Uh, When I get it to the publisher and I know that it's off to the printer, I'll I'll post the cover on on my website and, and of course, let you know. But... um, it's coming along well, and I put it in the preface to the book that this book is not an exciting one, but it's a necessary one. Because uh, what I'm trying to do is explore more deeply these relationships that led to the creation of this post-war situation where we have so much power residing in this Nazi international and so much power residing in these global corporations that seem up to a certain point in history to be in league with it. Uh, so it's a bit different than, than most of my other books, but um, 
and it's 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 not it's not fast paced like you know Rife of the Black Sun or SS Brotherhood of the Bell because of the kind of argument that I'm having to make in it. But it's going well. The the other book uh, that I'm co-authoring with my friend Scott DeHart, that's going well. Uh, we're hoping to have both these books done before the end of the year because I have two other books I'm researching oh <laughs> and a bunch of e-books I have planned. So, you know, oh. I'm very, very busy, and, and that's, again, why I so appreciate your, your asking about the PayPal donation button on my site because I... I Literally would not have made it through the summer without all the help from people, and I'm I'm so very grateful to all of you. Yes. Well, we've got some wonderful listeners, Joseph. And yeah, all over the world. Yes, and they care about you. <laughs> well, I I care about them too, and, and uh, I hope I hope God blesses them and, and protects them. Well, I do too. And I pray that God will bless you and protect you, Joseph. Your very, your work is, it's priceless. It's it's a real treasure. Thank Um, you. And everybody, go to GizaDeathStar.com and visit that PayPal button. And Joseph and I will be back soon. So God bless everybody out there that's listening. And by the way, this is Dirty Secrets Part 9. Good night. Night, everyone. All right, there we go. Okay, Um, pray with me for a moment and we will get started here. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you. Father, we thank you right now for life and for breath. We thank you for every blessing that flows from you. We thank you that in all situations, at all times, you are in control and we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, to lead and guide us into all truth and to direct our path, our journey, our experiences in this life, in this paradigm, in this construct, in this uh, experience of life. Father, we're grateful um, for your word. We're grateful for your truth. And however it is that you have brought this to us, Father, we receive it with grateful hearts, inviting your spirit of truth to lead and guide us, to teach us, to quicken us in the way so that we can walk in it and be glad. Thank you so much, Father, for this time. Bless the reading of your word. Bless this time and strengthen everyone that hears this message and encourage their hearts this day. In Jesus' name. Okay, okay, if you've got your scriptures, um, let's go to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 14. And it says at verse 14, okay, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, Why question ye with them? And one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. 
And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered them, he answered him and said, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou deaf and dumb, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind cometh forth not but by prayer and fasting. Um, okay, <clears throat> there is a lot in this passage, and there's a lot for us to consider this day. But one of the things that, that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on was sometimes in life, the reality of the situation that people experience, it can grind you down. Now, when Jesus, when Jesus was speaking to this father of this child, and he's getting some background, and he's allowing for this man. You know, sometimes when you get a question, you will find out so much in how you answer a question. What's truly going on, where you're at, right? You ask somebody, how's your day? Somebody says, oh, it's fine. Oh, somebody else says, oh, I'm, this is the most amazing day ever, right? Like, I mean, just whatever's going on within them will come out in their answer. And in this man's answer, when he's answering this question, he, one, he loves his son. He cares about his child. That so much so that he's brought his child into the situation in the middle of all of these people and all of the rest of this and exposed himself to whatever people may say, whatever they may think. He's brought himself in the middle of that in distress because when he's bringing this child here every time that this, this demonic presence comes into this child, um, tearing him, hurting him, making him wallow in foam. And the dad has been dealing with this since he was a child. Now that situation, put yourself in that father's, that dad's, um, just, just think about it. Think about that experience. And in, you know, sometimes people get to a certain stage in their own life, in their own experience, where 
they what they want they just want something to make the pain go away if it works great whatever it is doesn't matter what do they got to do and so you know they 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 stop with all the reasoning and the, all the high level things and it's like what is it going to take to make this pain stop what is it going to take to make this pain go away and in those kind of a situation the, the problem with the world one of the problems with the world and the world system is many times when people are in those kind of a situation that's the time when the world takes advantage of you people are in a desperate situation and they use that desperation to exploit them they use that desperation to destroy them many people that have been trafficked around the world human trafficking is done in a desperate situation people leave homes they leave families for a better prospect for a job for something to be able to keep their family afloat and they put themselves out there and they end up getting put in the worst possible situations organ trafficking labor trafficking sexual uh, exploitation uh, illegal adoption child soldiers all those kind of situations that take place in an unsafe migration it happens out of a desperate situation because people can't think and reason and act in their best interests in those times because they are, are at their wits end and here's the thing <clears throat> in life when you're at your wits end and this will happen occasionally you won't you won't spend your whole life at your wits end but you will have situations that come up that stretch you um it can be and sometimes it can be nothing to do with you it can be to do with the people that you love and care about around you uh it can be you know a byproduct of your work it can be a byproduct of of um you know the things that you engage in it could be you might get you might go into something to help somebody else and be put in a difficult situation as a result of it whatever it may be but when those things come up and when you are put in those difficult times where you need to go is not to lean on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge the lord and he will direct your path So the smartest thing that this dad did was to bring that situation to Jesus. The smartest thing that you can do in any of these situations, even when you're in that point of distress, is find Jesus. Where is Jesus? Where is he? Where do I got to go? How I got to get before this guy. I got to get in front of this guy because he's got the answer, right? And there is a place. Now, okay, Jesus for himself. What did he testify about of himself? he's the way the truth and the life right that's what he said about himself so you are now getting in front of and aligning yourself with the way you are aligning yourself with truth you are aligning yourself with the life you are you are moving in that direction and you are moving away from the traps and the snares and the plan and the purpose of the world because you don't need it you don't want it you want what he has because you know what the world has no solutions it has no answers it has no remedies and relief for the things that it does and the things that it causes this man in the world has, since this boy was a child has gone through trying different things and none of it worked and he's been brought to his wits end but jesus now when he comes before him now what happens though is also in this process yes jesus can address the immediate physical need but the immediate physical need is a manifestation 
of an underlying thing. And so this is an opportunity to heal something much deeper, to heal and to address something much deeper in this man, in this man's family, this man's son, and for the people that had eyes to see, those that are around him. And, you know, there's a lot of other things happening and taking place while this is going on. Because you got power dynamics taking place. you got scribes questioning disciples and everybody's fighting with each other and talking about it. And they're talking and they're, they're working on, you know, what's the, <laughs> just what's the right technique, right? What's the right thing to say? Why, why couldn't they do it, right? What did they miss? What word did they miss? What thing did they not do? And in this process, what's exposed um, is when Jesus is dealing with this, Verse 19, and he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Um, you know, what's interesting is, now faith, another word for faith is trust, right? And in, in so many of these situations, what happens is, is people trust, but they only trust up to a certain point because when things are tested, that's when you're going to really find out what people believe. It's when people are truly tested, that's when you find out what they really believe. When you 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 know you can you can be you can believe you can believe that certain things are going to be there, but when you're in the situation and you need things to come through, do you truly believe in that situation? Or is it just because it's the nice optics or it's a nice thing to say or you got caught up in the meeting and you got caught up with the music or whatever it may be. It's in the true belief is going to be what you hold on to no matter what. What you believe no matter what things are. And this is part of what God is cultivating inside of every one of us is faith, is trust, is to know that He's going to carry you through and bring you through as you trust in Him, as you look to Him, as you bring everything before Him, that He's going to carry you through onto the other side of these things. And so, when they brought this before Him, and they brought this situation before Him, as Jesus gets information about it, as, he, as they discuss it, as they bring it forward, he, and as He gets some background, um. This in this particular situation, there's there's going to be in in this particular situation there's going to be um, a there's going to be a, a particular time when you're going to have to deal with things and deal with yourself and realize where you're coming from. And in, in Jesus' situation, um, <clears throat> or in this, this man's situation when he's dealing with Jesus, the Father cried out. Jesus said to him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the Father realized and he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Because he knew, he knew that he could do it. But 
everything in his life leading up into this thing had been pushing him the other way. Had been the reality of his situation, of what he had experienced had been, and what he'd been reinforcing in his own world had been something to the contrary. And so in that particular time, in that particular situation, this now was the space where Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter with him. And he wants to come past it. And now this is what's important. You've got to want to, within yourself, go forward. And even if there's the smallest seed of belief within you, that's enough. Because you know what? God knows your frame. He knows what you can deal with. He knows how far you've been pushed, how far you've been stretched. He knows all of that. And you can bring all of that before him in a real relationship. He, he's not, listen, the, he's not looking for, oh, thou that flung the stars in the sky. He wants to open up your heart and have a real, real communication, real prayer, real experience with him. And in the process of doing that, he will meet you where you are. When Jesus, when Jesus was dealing with this, and in this particular situation, as he goes forward, and as he, as, as he goes forward in addressing this, the Father is also healed. Because in himself, um, that unbelief within him that has kept this away from his child, he kept this away from himself, because he's reinforced this too. At the same time that he's gone to different places, he'd not believe that anything would change. Because why? He, that's not been his experience. So he's reinforced that pattern. And something had to shift for that change to happen. And this shifted that day. And this is why, too, when we align with our higher spirit, with our higher self, with our higher state of being, because God says you are seated in heavenly places, we'll align with that. You know, when, G, when they asked him, why didn't it come out? He said, okay, prayer and fasting. Well, what does prayer and fasting do? It connects you with your higher state. More and more, you, you clear out a lot of the distractions and you connect yourself with that which is in a, a you connect yourself in a clearer, clearer flow. Um, and you allow for because you're just not as much, you're not as distracted. And Jesus was in that space and in that place. And so then, you know, he was able to be that flow through, that channel, that vessel, um, for the healing that needed to take place. And he's also quickened us just as he has also quickened the 12, the 70, the 72, um, you know, told them to go out and do this kind of thing that he's given that power to his people to be that, to, to be able to, to bring freedom and life for the captives and all the rest of it, you know, to, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cast out the demon to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He's, been, he's done that. And so as you continue to go forward in the power that God has put in you, part of what you will do, it's not just the manifestation of power and it's not just the experiences that people have and it's not just the changing, but you're also helping them to, with what needs to take place within them you're also helping them to see that, to realize that, to shift and to change. 
that is part of the 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 interactions necessary here because you know why if that didn't happen people would just they would solve their quick problem and then they go right back to whatever it was that they were doing missing the whole reason for the experience in the first place so you you and I we need to be able to walk in the power and in the truth and recognize that there is nothing off limits for you all right there's nothing off limits for you all things are possible to him that believe it you walk in that and you take the action steps towards that and you watch things manifest and unfold accordingly god is in your corner he's on your side everything in this universe is working on your behalf you know, start thinking in this term. Start thinking that the whole universe is conspiring on your behalf and for your good. And see how things begin to unfold. Make one shift and everything changes. Change the angle and the degree one way and everything changes. With that, bless you. In Jesus' name.